Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Welcome to episode 11 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler, and on today's episode, I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Richard Agurva. Richard is the author of four books, uh, Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today, as well as Change, Simple Thinking, and his latest book, Education, a Manifesto for Change. Now, like me, uh, Richard started his uh, professional career, if you like, in, as, a, as a, an educator, and he most notably was headmaster of a, a school in the UK called Grange Primary School, which at the time of Richard's taking over was described as failing and was close to closure. However, he went in there and through a whole heap of different initiatives, uh, really turned that school around. And now it's actually spoken about uh, all around the world by educators who are interested in changing what they do in schools. Since leaving education, he um, now actually consults all around the world on issues of leadership and speaks with major corporations like Google and Visa, Microsoft, as well as advising governments. And he also works much like we do at Cutthroat in the elite sport um, environment as well, working with Olympic and Paralympic coaches, uh, the Premier League soccer coaches, England golf and professional cricket teams. Recently, Richard was over in Australia, uh, speaking at a variety of events across a variety of sectors. He was here for a month and uh, our paths crossed and we they actually crossed in Perth. Uh, over in WA, and being a mate, he'd, he agreed to have a bit of a chat, but being a bit of a bungler, I forgot to take my recording equipment with me. So, this um, interview is actually, um, it, we just recorded it on a phone, so uh, please excuse the quality of the uh, the audio. Hopefully the quality of the conversation, however, uh, more than makes up for it. I uh, kicked off our conversation by asking Richard just to share a little bit about what he was talking about on his trip across Australia. Um, I mean, all of them come round to leadership and all of them really come down to what my, uh, my passion, which is around human leadership. Um, and so really, although the audiences are different, the, the generic roots are, are pretty much the same. And the fundamental questions that, that we've been exploring are, you know, despite everybody knowing that um, their sectors, uh, their industries are changing, why it is that people working for them and with them find it so hard to embrace the idea of change, of evolution. And so really that's where we've been exploring. And, and when, when I think about my background, um, which is not a terribly clever one, really. Um, I am nothing more than a, than a primary school teacher with a big mouth who just seems to have found himself in extraordinary situations. Um, the question that, that has always um, interested me is we're not born that way, right? So when you think about it, there are very few uh, six, seven, eight-month-old kids who are going through therapy because they can't cope with the rate of change in their lives, right? In fact... The counter of any one of us that have had young children of our own, the counter is true. If kids don't have new experiences and change almost every minute of every hour of every day, they drive us totally insane. Mm. So a lot of the exploratory work I do is trying to help people understand 
where that love and passion for embracing new and different and continuous change and challenge goes and why it is that we end up in organisations working with really great people who are often highly skilled and highly qualified who just find the whole process so incredibly painful. Mm. Is it because um, they're too busy doing what they've been told to do and they just frankly don't have the time or the energy to, to what extent is that I mean as I said you're working in many different sectors do you see that phenomenon of change fatigue where in the cold light of day people are saying you know what I think you're right we do need to do things differently but I either can't be asked or I just don't have the energy or the, or the time to commit to this. Absolutely and, and part of that is scepticism right people are exhausted by a certain type of change. Now, when you're a young child, change is something that's almost in your hands, in your gift, right? Everything is exciting and dynamic and everything is evolutionary and it's based on curiosity and exploration. In most organizations, change is really reactive and, and reactive change is exhausting because reactive change tends to feel for most people like stuff that's being done to them um, and always in a catch-up scenario. Also, because organizations tend to be so incredibly time-limited, what tends to happen is hierarchically leaders and managers design a system or structure, implement that system or structure and try and implement it yesterday, which means a lot of people in that organization don't have a deep context understanding or sense of ownership for what it is they're being asked to embrace and be involved in. And actually, for most people, change in, in an organisational level doesn't feel like change at all. It just feels like doing more on top of everything we've already been told we have to do. Mm. Because as a child, our perception changes of learning, of development, of management. We go from kind of this very free-form, kind of jazz-like exploration into a world where we're taught taught and told that things are only of value if somebody else tells us what to do, how to do it, and measures it for us. So we tend to lose a lot of our own sense of direction and ownership as we get older. Um, and then increasingly, as we get into the higher echelons of education into university, um, we're basically, that, that idea of our own curiosity, our own, our own direct involvement in transformation, diminishes almost entirely. And so by the time we enter the work stream and the workforce, we've basically been trained to do what we're told, when we're told, how we're told, and as efficiently as possible. And that kind of process is exhausting, demoralizing, especially when there are more and more and more and more layers filtered down on, on top of what we're already doing. And so one of the great challenges for organizations, first of all, is to build a context for change so that everyone in an organization understands why. Secondly, that we get ahead of the curve so that there is a large percentage of time where that change doesn't feel reactive, but feels proactive, developmental, opportunistic, you know, a real kind of thing to, to investigate, to explore, to action research, to develop something new and meaningful. And then to trust people to be able to embrace and be part of that. That sense of ownership changes yeah. the psychology of everything. Yeah. And that last piece there that you picked up, we trust the people we have. So um, I, I really want to explore that in, in your book, uh, Education, a Manifesto for Change. Uh, you talk about this idea of assuming excellence. So I think um, you know, that for, for a lot of leaders, 
Uh, certainly the ones that uh, we come into contact with in, in our work, a lot of leaders have either been burnt in the past by people who perhaps haven't stepped up when given the opportunity. Perhaps they're in situations where, you know, we, we often ask people, what's your biggest challenge? You know, and in schools, for example, very rarely is it the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious as to how <laughs> I'm curious as to how you convey this idea of we have to put trust in people and we take that. Let's assume excellence here. How do you balance that with what people might tell you is their experience? Well, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting because you've got to look at the counter too, right? So most traditional organisations operate under what I call the assumption of incompetence, mm-hmm. which is very traditional Taylorist thinking so and and that's not necessarily to say it's you know I'm not condemning it because Taylorism was hugely successful in the industrial age you know founded on the principle that you focus on efficiency because if you focus on efficiency you um, increase productivity if you increase productivity you increase profit you use that profit to focus on becoming more efficient and so you create the perfect cycle of industrial development right now most of our organizations most of our schools are founded on that principle they're also founded on that principle to say that people will only do their best if they're managed to do so Mm. right so in other words we put targets and systems and pd processes in place in our schools to say this is what i want you to do this is how you'll be measured this is what you'll be measured against now it's it's human nature that people know that if that's what's at stake, that's what they focus on, right? And by the way, the real irony within schools is schools operate that way uh, for students too. We assume students are incompetent. In other words, policymakers, not teachers, but policymakers believe that kids are fundamentally lazy and will only learn if they're made to learn, right? And so what happens is you create this dependency culture, which, in a Taylorist world of efficiency, productivity, profit, and, and, and so on, is absolutely what we should have been doing because you needed a workforce who were dependent on management and leaders to tell them what to do, how to do it, high levels of routine cognition, and, and to repeat and repeat and repeat over again. What, of course, we've now entered into is a world that is dramatically changing from that. We're moving away from that kind of efficiency culture in our organisations. And when you look at the world's most dynamic new businesses, most of which tend to be new tech, what they operate under is this idea of assumed excellence. In other words, the people that are being hired, which is probably true to an extent because of their reputation, like companies like Google, Apple, um, you know, are brilliant people. And the job of the leadership is to get out of their way but create the conditions for those people to just go and do stunning things because what they're relying on is innovation creativity problem solving collaboration Um, that doesn't mean you absolve responsibility because you still hold those people to account but you only intervene when somebody fails to deliver rather than the the assumption that we have to intervene and bring everybody up to the same level that changes significantly the culture um, in in an organization but and this is the real challenge for organizations that are looking to move from a, a culture of assumed incompetence to a culture of assumed excellence it takes a huge amount of time because you've got to remember that the people who are working with you in our schools, for example, are not used to working in that climate. And actually, it can be a very terrifying place. So one of the key things I say to people often is, 
if you want to move towards a culture of assumed excellence, you need to audit where you are now and give yourself a long amount of time to lead into that transformation and that change. Because if you suddenly give high dependent people the spotlight, so in other words, you say, actually, now your actions will be audited against you rather than what happens in a culture of assumed incompetence, which is I can blame somebody hierarchically further up the food chain. That's a very scary thing because suddenly the spotlight that was on the manager or leader is now directly on you. And actually, one of the things we have to do is help people develop the, the courage, which comes from the word you've picked up on already in this, this conversation, trust. And that can only be developed over time. And then people will just slowly be prepared to creep from, uh, creep from the shade into the sunlight. Mm. So in schools, because uh, that's where we spend a fair bit of time, and um, you know, in, in, in businesses it's easy often to say, you know, to change the culture, change the people. In schools where sometimes I think, you know, there are, and, and there'll be people listening who might have colleagues at previous schools who, you know, dead set that you'd have to kill a student in order to be sad. <laughs> uh, in, in a system which um, it, it's hard to move the people on, how do you move the people within? Well, I think the first thing is to remember, um, and, you know, I know there will be leaders listening to this in schools who will be kind of sharpening their knives at the thought of some of the colleagues we may be inferring. Mm. Right. One of the things we all need to remember is, although there are some really bad teachers, we've all met them, we've all been taught by Just as there are in every profession. Exactly, you know, yeah, yeah, let's be very clear. You're never going to find a profession where everybody's 100% up for it, right? But one of the things that has always really interested me is I don't think I've ever met any teacher who chose to go into the job because they couldn't wait to screw up kids' lives. Mm, you know, yeah. People don't go, I want to be a teacher because I really want to screw yeah. up kids' lives. I have a right? pathological hatred of yeah, youth. Just, and this, yeah, is, this, and is, this is the job for me, this is, right? Yeah. This is so much like a vocational calling. Yeah. Or the teachers who wake up in the morning, I've never met one who wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to, to do a bad job yeah. today, right? Yeah. And one of the things in my experience of, of being a, a teacher and, and then a school principal was that often those there, there are a few who are just do not possess the skill and ability but the vast majority of those really challenging teachers mm. are often people who have had concrete poured on their passion yeah. goes back to what we were saying before endless new initiatives mm. endless change mm. the perception that stuff is done to them mm. that has pulled them away from their primary love which has always been to educate the students in their care and so for me one of the things we have to do as leaders in our schools particularly given Mm. the environment where it is very very hard Mm. to to remove a teacher from post is to try and find dig under the concrete try Mm. and find that passion reignite it and work with it to draw that teacher back out of themselves. Look, here's a really controversial viewpoint. We would never talk about disposing of challenging kids Mm. the way we talk about trying to dispose of challenging teachers. Mm. We would never do that because Mm. it would be perceived to be more than just immoral, Mm. and rightly so. But I think one of the things we need to be reminded of as leaders in our schools is that our teachers are basically people too. And we, the great job of leadership is to always unearth the talent in others. Um, Managers, that's about implementing systems and structures. Leadership is about something far more challenging. And if ever I had to um, 
take a teacher through competency, which I had to do once or twice, I would always go home at night blaming myself. And just as an analogy, I remember talking to Richard Branson some years ago, and he said to me, you know, I turned down the chance to be on The Apprentice in both the US and, in a way, I'm sorry about that, because if he'd taken on The Apprentice in the US, maybe he'd be president now. But, um, but he, he turned down the opportunity to front The Apprentice in the US and the UK. And I said, why did you do that? He said, because of the very catchphrase, you're fired. And I said, what do you mean? He said, sometimes it's inevitable that people aren't going to work out. But he said, as a leader, I've always believed if I've actually had to fire somebody, it was my fault in the first place. And I think sometimes as a leader, we need to challenge ourselves that way in order to get the best out of ourselves and more importantly, the people we're trying to lead. Yeah, I'm thinking of um, a throwaway line sometimes we use, you know, you're not here to teach the kids you wish you had, you're here to teach the kids you have. And I wonder if there's a similar thing to be said for leaders, you know, you of course you could lead the dream team yeah exactly right? but not right. everyone gets to work with the dream team and, the, and your worth as well worth's probably too strong a word but what you bring as a leader that's yeah you've got to work with the people you've got right absolutely so we're both former teachers and now we spend a lot of time in, in schools and I wanted to um, pick you up actually on something you said right at the beginning of this interview when you described yourself as just a teacher uh, yeah, yeah, with yeah. a loud mouth and the reason I want to pick you up is because you pick other people up on saying that I do. Um, and, and in your book um, Education and Manifesto for Change which we will put a link to in the show notes um, you actually talk about how every teacher is a leader and there's some real similarities between the great leaders and the, and the great teachers so let's Let's forget you ever said just a teacher. <laughs> yeah, just edit and, that yeah, bit out. Right? No, no, I won't. I'm no, leaving no, it there. No, I, I, I for, thought you would. For, yeah. for eternity. Yeah, thanks to everybody <laughs> yeah. for that. But, um, but in terms of um, you know, drawing the comparisons between great leaders, leaders and great teachers, I just wonder if you could just draw out maybe one or two of the real commonalities that you see there. Yeah, and first of all, you're absolutely right, and thank you for pulling me up on it. It's one of those things I almost say ironically most of the time these days, because one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is that given the adventures I've been privileged enough to have in the last 11 years since I left working directly in a school, you come to realise that actually great teachers could probably walk into any leadership post in any organization in the world mm. and blow that organization out of the water with their skill and ability. So one of the really important messages for me in the book is ironically this thing that as a profession, my God, we undervalue ourselves and we undervalue the micro decisions we make every second of every day in pursuit of the best for our students. Um, and actually the sophistication of what we're doing. We just, you know, we're a profession obsessed with what we've never achieved rather than what we, we are achieving. Um, and in, the, in that period of time I've been out of school, I've had that privilege of, of just seeing how, you know, my career in the last decade has been founded on telling boardrooms what I would have done with their people if they'd been a group of nine-year-olds on a cold, wet Thursday mm. afternoon. And they're blown away mm. by the sheer scale of, of that, that concepting. Mm. I know there are hundreds of thousands of teachers out there who could be giving exactly the same message. Mm. So the first important thing is to remember that our instincts 
around human development as teachers are extraordinary because what we are, the best of us do, is we really take time to understand every single one of the students in our care, what makes them tick, what their passions are, what their anxieties and perceived weaknesses are. And we use that knowledge to ensure that we get the best out of those students and most importantly that those students feel valued and trusted and confident enough to engage in learning. Now the parallel to an organisation is very simple because I think sometimes we forget how challenging learning actually is. You know, to, to, be, to be a learner at any age requires huge levels of self-confidence because to learn, you never learn something new by making a mistake or realizing you don't know something, you can't do something, right? So it is a dangerous process. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to create the context in others to feel that they're secure, psychologically safe enough, mm -hmm. they're in an environment where those things are, are um, respected takes takes huge skill. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things we need to appreciate as teachers is that we are, the number of times I've heard teachers say, I don't want to go into leadership. Mm. I don't want to go into leadership. I don't, I don't fancy the Well, the truth is you're leading 30 plus kids every hour of every day in your classrooms. And I think sometimes we throw away what are huge skills. And those are the human instinctual things we do. So one of the things I often say to teachers and to people in, in businesses and organizations is stop second guessing your instincts because 99% of the time those instincts are correct and particularly around how to manage and lead people. Mm. So, you mentioned very briefly there this idea of a psychologically safe mm -hmm. space and I know um, again in your book you talk about the work of Project Aristotle from, from Google and it's actually a lot of um, that work informs the stuff we do in our Habits of Leadership programs. That idea of psychological safety, just how important is it to have a place where I feel I can be who I am and speak to, to my truth and, 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 and that my values are of equal importance, even if that, even if it does clash with perhaps the, the, that of the organisation or that, that of, I guess in particular, that, that interpersonal relationship with leaders or, or, or my colleagues. Probably my shortest answer to date here, mm -hmm. um, paramount. At the end of the day, you know, when you go back to the research from Project Aristotle, for example, which Google carried out as part of their program to understand what made their most successful teams successful, they ranked in order of importance their findings. And psychological safety was number one, the most important characteristic of the most important, the, the most successful teams at Google. Yeah. And let's be clear here: sometimes people like me and you, to an yeah. extent, got get accused of being sort of soft left-wing liberal people who are too humanistic. And let's be clear: mm. Google mm. are not soft left-wing people who are trying to be deeply humanistic, yeah. right? And therefore, psychological safety appears as the number one characteristic of what makes the best teams at Google for a reason. Yeah. And there is absolutely no doubt about it. And it speaks to something I said just briefly before. This thing about learning is tough, mm. right? You cannot learn in an environment where you feel you are under scrutiny and pressure, where you aren't trusted, where your voice isn't valued. Mm. Because if you're prepared to step far enough out of your comfort zone, to admit you don't know something or you can't do something and then feel confident about what happens next, which is the joy of learning, you have to be in an emotionally safe environment. Mm -hmm. And I worry sometimes 
that certainly when we see some of our kids who are underperforming in our schools, their, their number one reason for that underperformance and sometimes their misbehavior is they have no sense of psychological safety. Mm. And the same is true of the teachers we've been talking about. You know, a lot of those teachers we want to fire mm. actually could be absolutely brilliant if they only felt more psychologically yeah. safe. Absolutely. You've mentioned a few times, and I'd love to finish with this, you've mentioned a few times that being a learner is tough and you know you speak a lot about learning, you speak a lot about leadership, so this is, uh, what, this is the, my final question, what's been the toughest lesson you've learned about leadership? I think the toughest lesson I've learned about leadership is what I necessarily understand and feel passionate about is not necessarily what other people working with me and for me um, understand and feel passionate about. And the instinct sometimes when you just know that you've hit on a great vein or a great idea and your instinct is to get it implemented as quickly as you possibly can, um, never works. And actually the key is to be prepared to step back, to somehow temper your enthusiasm to start by processing are your team ready for what you're trying to develop and implement and if they're not you have to create the context for why that becomes important to them and actually then the most difficult job of a leader i think is to empower others to enact that vision and what you value um, you know one of the things i often say to people and maybe it's a final thought is that the mark of a great leader for me ironically is somebody who's working hard to do themselves out of a job Richard Gerber is the author of Education, a Manifesto for Change. He also happens to be a great mate of mine. And thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to have a chat today, man. Oh, it's Cheers. been awesome, Dan. Brilliant. Thank you. Cheers, man. If you enjoyed this podcast, then there's a fair chance that someone you know would enjoy this podcast. So please feel free to share it as far and as wide in your network as possible. Also, if you found what Richard had to say interesting, then you might want to check out his website and also links to his books, which are in the show notes. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it's on Apple iTunes and Spotify or Podbean, please do give us a little subscribe and maybe leave a comment and also rate it. It's a simple thing for you to do, but it makes a massive difference to us here at Cut Through Coaching. And also, don't forget, if you have any questions or comments or insights or perhaps suggestions for guests or topics that we should have on the Habits of Leadership podcast, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there and you can let us know what you are thinking. But until next time, until the next episode, take care, take it easy.